podcast where I am just cracked enough to uh, let a lot of light in and um, appreciate everybody coming back. Appreciate all the com- comments we're getting. We are going to get more regular. We've had a number of uh, delayed uh, guests who were going to come on and had to reschedule and we've had some others who have had to postpone until later in the year. So hopefully by fall we'll get back on our weekly schedule again. But today makes up for a lot of that because I have Diana Butler Bass who I really enjoyed talking to. Uh, Her new book, Grounded, um, Finding God's Word in a Spiritual... Finding God's Word in the World, a Spiritual Revolution. Get that right. Kind of reminds me of a cross between uh, if Paul Tillich and Annie Dillard had written a book together, but maybe that's not a fair (laughs) comparison, but that's kind of some of what I picked up on it. But if you're not familiar with Diana Butler Bass, where have you been? Because she's an author, speaker, a scholar, and she specializes in American religion and culture. She's got an earned PhD from Duke University and has authored nine books, including the one I just mentioned, and the one that a lot of people, a lot of you may have read, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Uh, you can find her other books at Amazon. Um, she is a good writer. She also continues to write for the Huffington Post, Washington Post, and you may have seen her on television commenting on religion, politics, and culture, the media, in places like USA Today, and Time, Newsweek, CBS, CNN, Fox, PBS, NPR. It's more likely that, that, it, that there's very few of you who have not seen Diana Butler Bass because she is an informed and an interesting voice in talking about why there are still reasons for faith and hope in the world we live in today, which is the reason this podcast started back uh, late last, back in October of last year. She also has a lot to say about being grounded in a search for spirituality. And I, I found the book to be a really um, fresh look at some of those ideas. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, do you remember the first experience that you really recognized as spiritual in your life? Well, I read about one in Grounded that when I look back at it, I think about it as being a spiritual experience. And I was probably only three or four years old when I almost uh, drowned. And I, I believe that my I was with my parents at the Chesapeake Bay, but I can't be 100% certain about that. And um, when I was in the water uh, with uh, my dad, uh, he let go of my hand. And... Um, remember being under the water, sort of brought under by some sort of toe of a wave or, or something to that effect, and looking up uh, through the water and seeing the light uh, through the water and being all diffused. And that was so vivid to me, and I've remembered it my, my, my whole life. Um, my parents actually said that I almost died. They told me that later on. By, by drowning, uh, but I didn't. I was rescued and, and came up out of the water, and someone, I guess, breathed into my lungs, and I was all right. But, but that experience of that light and the, the whole beauty and remember seeing the scene just so the colors, and, and the, it was like there was a presence um, that was there. And so, so, you know, I've pondered on that occasionally and wondered if it was sort of like a near-death experience for a three- or four-year-old, um, but I, I really don't know. That, however, is the, sort of the first thing that I can say I actually remember in my life that seemed like 
it was had a dimension to it that was not just about the material world that was immediately around me. So that was when I was very young. I remember that story in the book, and I, I couldn't help but think, you know, it, it, you couldn't have a better story for later to use in one of your books than light and water and spiritual and rebirth. And all. I mean, you know, you can't make these things up. Then, well, you know, I mean, you, you, if you get to pick stories from your childhood that are going to work later, let's have, if they're going to be traumatic, let's make them really usable later as a story. Well, it, it is really, it, it, it is a beautiful story, too, in the sense of, you know, later on understanding, like, what baptism is. And also my interest in the national world and ecology and environment and how I think that God is situated with us, you know, in the world. And so, so it's a, it is a great story in that way. And my, there's a kind of a corresponding story that I told in some of my other books about, and this is probably, I was probably about the same age, maybe just a tiny bit older. I remember actually standing in the church balcony um, with my mother, and I was the oldest of three kids. This is probably about 1962, maybe 1963, and uh, my mom was wearing a bright yellow dress, and she had on a pillbox hat, and my brother and sister, who were little, teeny tiny, tiny things, they were in the nursery, but I got to go to the big church um, with my mom, and um, we were standing up there, it's this Methodist church, and it is a very sunny day. Again, light comes into play in this, this story. Light was falling through the stained glass window onto this red carpet, and my mom opened the hymn book, and she shared it with She was sharing it with me, you know, even though I couldn't read. She's teaching me, you know, these practices of the church. And uh, the hymn was Holy, Holy, Holy. And uh, she, this is one of my mom's favorite hymns. And uh, she was singing it quite, you know, lustily, and uh, I was imitating her. And so I remember that moment uh, very clearly as well. So I had one in the natural world, one very deep spiritual experience in the natural world, and one deep spiritual experience in the, the physical building of the church. And uh, what's interesting about those stories back-to-back is that's what all of my writing has been about in the last 15 to 18 years. Uh, that combination of finding God in the world, having a sort of very lively and unexpected sense of God showing up in places you don't anticipate, and then also being very concerned about the church being more than just an institution, but the church being a place of beauty, a place of relationship, a place of shared practice, a place of where we learn uh, from others, and even an intergenerational place. And so those two stories really sort of capture the themes of all the work that I've done in the last almost now two decades. Well, I remember in one place in the book you were talking about, and, and I, I thought about it, uh, I actually just stopped and thought about it when I read it. You were talking about, you know, the idea of the enchanted view of the world, Um and um, in, in some ways, it's almost like the church missed the best parts of that uh, when you start thinking about they They really leaned more back towards uh, um, their own natural instincts and thoughts and rules and things rather than thinking there was something beyond that. Um, 
I guess that's what I was going to follow up with is, is growing up then, did you have this sort of view of the world that there was something, there was spirit and light and something that you were really longing for or that you thought about a lot growing up or was that something that came later? That was always present. I was just, I guess, uh, spiritually precocious <laughs> because I can remember, you know, everything from going out and playing in the little woods that was near our house and uh, imagining sort of stories of, of fairies and life in the woods and all kinds of what I would call having a sense that the whole of the universe was alive to me, to me, alive around me in ways that I did not particularly understand. And so, so I've always been that person, um, very imaginative, very, very mystical. My my best friend for now the last 30 years, a woman who is an atheist, she teaches religious studies at a university in Florida, and uh, she laughs at me because she said, there's no way that I, that I, meaning me, Diana, her friend, could not believe in God because God constantly was showing up all the time in my life. And she said, whatever that mystical gene is, you've got that one. And she, and she said, I just don't have that. And uh, I didn't realize there were people who just didn't have that gene. <laughs> but, but, hey, my best friend, she didn't have that gene. And so I understand, I know that it's kind of a, a different way of being in the universe, but that there are some people who are like me, and there's some people like my friend Julie. And I think that one of the things that I'm really deeply concerned with is how do you keep those two groups in, of people in conversation and that the, the, the very rational and logical scientific inheritance that my friend Julie really values, um, you know, to make sure that stays in balance with my own mysticism, but to always be reminding my friends who don't necessarily have the mystical gene that there is a part of life that's right beyond our words and right beyond our understanding. And so, so those two things really concern me and what does not concern me at all and what I get endlessly frustrated with is dogma-oriented and rules-based religion. I, I, I don't even understand. I don't even understand this. Um, they, I know I have a Ph.D. in American religious history. I know that that's a big theme in American religion. But I actually have no emotional inclination towards any of that at all. And it has, nothing, it has never been anything but a complete turnoff for me. And so now there are all these people who are sort of, you know, leaving that kind of religion behind. And I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've never embraced that form of Christianity. And I just kind of, I just am kind of sort of actually delighted that all these new people are sort of showing up around and who are searching for different kinds of ways of being Christian and putting together a sort of more spiritual, mystical life with, uh, science and literature and rationality and moral uh, moral concerns. And so I, I see that the sort of the alternative is the place that I've always lived. And that I love the fact that more people are migrating towards the alternative right now. So I don't see what's happening in any way is frightening. I think it's beautiful and I think it's very honest. And quite frankly, I'm glad people 
are abandoning rules-based religion because that's not what Jesus ever intended in the first place. Why do you think so many people, though, and this is nothing new either, but why so many people are drawn to want somebody to tell them what to do? I mean, we can see it in politics. We see it in the church. They want somebody, some leader somewhere to be their guru, their their hero, whatever. There seems to be still a clarion call to a, a, a fairly large number of people that responds to that kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of depressing because certainly you see it in our politics very strongly right now. Um, but the, I, I remember reading about four or five years ago, there were several studies on this and uh, sociology. No, this is not sociology or religion. This is just straight sociology. And uh, people have done surveys and sort of analyses of American personality types. And every time I've seen one of these folks, I think there are three or four of them now, they say the same thing, and that is roughly 20 to 25% of Americans have an authoritarian disposition in their personality. And that is they like that stuff. They want order and rules, and they think that truth is based in dogma and that they have to have a certain kind of like chain of command of authority. And if they don't have those things, they think that the whole of the universe is falling apart. And it's, it's disconcerting for them personally and politically and um, emotionally. And so they, they literally cannot survive. Um, they can't function without an authoritarian framework. And, and I don't know if every country has that high of a percentage of people who have authoritarian dispositions, but the United States does. So somewhere between four, uh, one in four and one in five Americans naturally migrate towards um, institutions and worldviews that are highly structured and rules-based. That, to me, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> well, I, mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. The thing that depresses me about it is, yeah. historically, you know, we, we see it now all the time. If we have a new law or a new rule, that'll take care of everything. Well, obviously, you could go as far back as the Ten Commandments. They couldn't keep ten. And if you keep adding to them, nobody is still going to be able to keep rules. Rules don't change human hearts. And yet, like you're saying, unfortunately, that group you mentioned, I, I fear a large percentage of those end up in public office and in places where they just continue adding layers. While we have more people incarcerated than any country in the world is because of that very, you know, sort of predisposition to, well, if we just have another law or another rule, we'll lock everybody up that's causing trouble and the rest of us will be fine. And that just doesn't work. And this goes a long way, actually, explaining the popularity of Donald Trump among white evangelicals. Because... Ever since Trump showed up on the scene, people started asking me, uh, well, do you think evangelicals will vote for him? And at first I thought not. You know, I thought, oh, they're going to vote for somebody like Ted Cruz or John Kasich of Ohio. You know, people who are just a bit more um, in their wheelhouse in terms of overt piety and, it's, you know, how they seem to know actually know like the bible and while they have different spins on it than i do you know i can recognize that that's a form of christianity but donald trump you know i was looking at that and i was going there's there is no way that evangelicals are going to support him but then 
as the months start ticking by, you know, during the um, primaries, and he was gaining all this support, I, I went back and I sort of rethought that, and I realized as soon as I, you know, kind of drew back from my initial shock, um, that Trump was appealing to their authoritarianism and their hope for a, a strong father, and that in certain ways Trump reflects their idea of God. Um, and that is, you know, God is a solitary character who is strong and cannot be influenced by outside forces and who works for the good of good people. You know, there's sort of a benefit uh, sort of calculation in that. And I think that, you know, they really began to sort of see um, their ideas of what they think God is like um, reflected in this political candidate, which it strikes me as idolatry, but, you know, there you have it. And, um, you know, later on, even past that moment, it was very clear that that started to develop, is that Trump was the, the ruler or the strong father or the godly king who was going to save the children of Israel from their own destruction. And, um, you know, there's a lot of evangelical sermons, and uh, you can find them all over YouTube and the like, where people are actually comparing Trump to King David. And, you know, Ted Cruz, he can chat on the Bible all he likes, but the truth of it is, is a guy who gets up and reads Three Nakes and Hands, standing on the tenth floor, is never going to be mistaken for King David, you know. And uh, John Kasich has too much compassion. Uh, you know, he's kind of too empathetic for them. And so there was one candidate and one candidate only that really truly reflected the sort of the deep authoritarian worldview of white evangelicalism. And that was Donald Trump. And it explains why they stand by him still. They are not going to let go of this guy because this guy is God's guy. And this is the way they think the universe should be uh, put together. And they're not going to they're not going to budge there. I, I expect to see no deterioration of support for him anytime soon among the white evangelical community. Uh, and I agree. And the other part I'd add to that is he can't be questioned, you know, in the same sense. You know, you can't That's ask correct. a question. And the, the, the idea that uh, um, somebody... Questions are, questions are evil. Right. You know, because questions undermine authority. You know, and who who among us? can stand up and ask the king a question. You know, that's just not, you would be getting out of your place. And so if you ask a question or if you question the person who's in authority, well, then you are the sinner um, and you're the person that needs to be quieted or shut up because you're the one who's breaking the law. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just, I, I keep thinking I have lost the ability to be surprised and then something actually surprises, surprises me again <laughs> The next news cycle comes out. It's amazing, and even the, even the comparisons. I don't want us to chase politics the whole time, but even the comparisons to Nixon are unfair mm-hmm. because Nixon was one a combat veteran of World War II and a brilliant lawyer. He argued the the best privacy laws we have now are because Nixon argued them before the Supreme Court. He was just a paranoid alcoholic by the end of his you know presidency, but. Uh, the, the comparisons don't even hold up there because you've, you've you've got somebody who. Uh, 
That's the that's the, I'm going to skip ahead to that and come back because the, one of the questions I was going to ask you is one of the things you talked about is the power the positive power of community in the book. But I, I've seen in this context what we're talking about a very negative power of community when the community like the evangelical community has rallied behind him in such a, a blind uh, write all the blank checks you want way that uh, there that scares me a little bit. That how do you find what you call the common? when there's so many people screaming so loudly against such a concept. Yeah, well, I think that I have to back up for a moment about my own story. Um, in the early 1990s, I got my first job, and uh, that was as a college professor. I had just graduated from Duke for a Ph.D. Um, in American religious history, and I was hired by an evangelical college in California to teach church history and uh, theology. And so I, I'm so excited, you know. <laughs> the jobs were very hard to find in academia right then. And, you know, here I was a young woman. I did really well in my, my graduate program. I got out. I, got, I had this, this job in a beautiful place in California. And so I went and I, I started, um, started to teach. And um, within, oh gosh, I don't know, 18 months of me arriving there, and I thought I was doing my job, but what I did not know is that my presence as a woman who was teaching religious studies was extraordinarily upsetting to the system. Um, I was actually the first woman at any evangelical college in the United States who did not teach just in women's studies or Christian education. Uh, women who had degrees, who had taught in evangelical colleges, who had taught religion before I got my job, had always taught these soft subjects. But there I was, I was teaching theology and church history, so I was in the tough stuff, you know, with the guys. And I was the only woman, anyway, in a department of, of 10 people. And so it was, it was a very difficult experience. And... Um, I eventually did not get tenure, which is a nice way of academics saying you're fired. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so it was, um, it, and it was really frightening, um, you know, to spend all this time in your life invested in getting these degrees, spend a ton of money to have student loans, you know, the whole deal, and to dream. I had, I really dreamt of being one of those, you know, stellar evangelical women academics. I wanted to be like George Marsden or Nathan Hatch or Mark Knoll, these amazing uh, church historians who are obviously all men. I wanted to be like them, but I wanted to be a woman doing that. And so, so, but I couldn't because the structure and system of the whole thing did not actually allow for women to achieve. So, so anyway, I got fired. And when I left the school, I remember how angry I was, and I wanted, I had this, this, this profound feeling that I wanted to get even, um, but I had, this, I had this wonderful spiritual director at the time, and she said to me, you know what, Diana, I don't think you should do anything that's really, you, you don't write a book, you know, don't come out too hard, just, I, I was working for the Santa Barbara News Press after I got fired from the academic job. Um, and so, so I, you know, was working in newspaper and columnist kind of world. And um, so I, I was doing that, but I, I didn't really 
ever sort of hit directly um, against the sort of this evangelical thing that had tried essentially to destroy me. And so I, I, I spent a lot of time processing and praying about what had gone on. And I realized that, and this, this speaks to your question, I could have gone back and tried to attack that system of authority and that system of hierarchy and that system of injustice directly, um, in which case I actually think it probably would have destroyed me. But instead, as I was quiet and just let whatever it was grow inside me that needed to grow, um, I realized there was a different way of handling the problem. And that was the idea of setting up an alternative narrative. Because I looked, and everywhere you went, the word Christian was being associated completely with the word evangelical. And I kept, real, I kept saying to people, well, there are other kinds of Christians. And so instead of coming at the authoritarian narrative, I decided that, I was, that my calling was really to build up the narrative strength of, of that other story a story about spiritual experience, a story about mysticism, historically and theologically and all kinds of other ways, a story about justice, a story about um, a group of Christians who are not at odds with the world, but instead see the world in a certain kind of correspondence with God's presence and, the, and that there is a relationship between God and the world. And so for the last Ever since I got fired, I've been working on the very question you asked. Um, I've been working on trying to figure out what are the stories of that other thing, that alternative community, and how do you build that up? And I've been convinced that the only way to build it up is for us to be public about it. Um, When somebody says, this is Christianity, a person like me or yourself, or other of your guests have to stand up and say, no, that's only one form of Christianity. And that form of Christianity, as a matter of fact, seems to violate the Bible and the spirit of Jesus at several very important junctures. And did you know that there's this other form of faith, this other way of interpreting the Bible, this other way of experiencing Jesus? And what I've discovered, of course, in the last two decades is that when you talk about that other way, People are completely transfixed because they didn't know it existed. And um, I think that there is an enormous space for people of faith, for Christians, but also for, for Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and people who are spiritual but not religious to stand up and say, hey, there is an enormous amount of, of, of public space and there are, a number, there are huge numbers of us in it. Um, who thinks that uh, faith is about love, faith is about justice, faith is about compassion, and it's not about following the rules, and it's not about a strong father, but instead it's about holding hands together and being involved in the creative process of following what God has always done for this, this universe. And that is that people will be able to dwell with dignity and delight with one another and in peace. And to me, the more we tell that story, the more we write about that, the more we equip people theologically and biblically to live in that 
story. Um, we're actually combating the authoritarian story, uh, but you don't have to become an alternative authoritarian. You don't have to become like what you're fighting. You actually are able to become something different. And so that's what I'm actually hoping is happening. It's harder to see because, you know, people don't necessarily report on stories of compassion or it's very hard sometimes to form community around those, what people perceive to be softer virtues. Um, but I don't see what, I don't, I don't understand that, that there's really any other option. And so that's what my work is really all about. Well, you can't quantify it, like you said. And the other thing is, when people mention that to me, I just you know, try to gently remind them that most of the Christians in the world don't live in the United States. <laughs> we're sort of, you know, <laughs> we're like everything yeah, else. We're the extreme on everything in this country. I mean, we're the extreme. We do well, the extremely good things and the extremely nuts things. Yeah, when I, when I travel abroad, I'm, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how even overseas when people think of American Christianity, all they think of is American fundamentalism. It's just enormously depressing. And, um, you know, you find yourself having to constantly apologize and explain and, and say, you know, hey, we're, we're not like that. There, and there, there are places, of course, in South America and Africa where we've exported that really, truly horrible form of faith. And they're suffering because of that kind of what I think is theological colonialism right now. Um, but I'm hoping that, I, and I know this, there are people throughout the global South who, who understand that very clearly and are sort of fighting for their own voices um, in Christian theology and uh, Christian life. And so, so I root for them. Well, and, but it's, it's, these, these are difficult times. There's no doubt about that. And it, and it, you know, we, you know, you can't really say like, um, you know, before the tape turned on, we were talking about how the Southern Baptists. So you can't really say, oh gosh, look at this—the biggest denomination, Protestant denomination in America, 14, 16 million people, however many they have. You can't say that about the people that I'm writing to. You know, they they don't belong to a church necessarily. They might belong to a church, um, and they might even. Most of them belong to the Unitarians, who knows, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's not about numbers over there. It's about quality of relationship, and it's about creative, creative engagement with the world. And so you can't say, oh, look, 14 million people, and that's the way we think in the United States, oh, 14 million people, 14 million voters, 14 million people who can be controlled or, or, or brought for a particular cause and pressure Congress, you know, so we think of those 14 million as a voting block or a power center or whatever we think of them as. But then there's this other group over here, and we think, oh, you know, well, what better day? You know, singing in fields. Well, I think having okay. mystical, mystical experiences at rivers. You know, sure. <laughs> but well, I think that those people. I think there's actually more of those people than anyone anyone is aware. Well, I think, well, one, the Unitarians are still unclear on membership. They're not sure that's a good idea or not. But anyway. <laughs> the, just joking about the Unitarians, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I've told this on the podcast before, so y'all forgive me, but you've probably heard that you can tell you've angered the Unitarians because they come over to your house and burn a question mark on your lawn. There you go. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> I want my Unitarian friends. Yeah. But what so I was going to say I, is I, there's I, a group of people I, that that... I grew up in the warehouse of the buckle of the Bible Belt. They 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 sold the buckles out of the, the deep south, and um, 
so many people now have grown up in it, have been promised a spiritual life and freedom and only to find that they're getting older and realize that they're just afraid and the religion's not working for them. And those folks trying to find the path where they don't give up on a reason to have faith, even though in many cases everything they've ever been taught about faith has left them confused and empty. And those are the kind of people that you talked about a little bit, especially toward the end of the book. Um, yeah, you know, I that it just makes me really that makes me really sad because you know while you can talk about the whatever one in five Americans who has the authoritarian turn of mind, you know the the kind of religion we're talking about uh, that largely is manifested in the South but not exclusively so, um, you know it meets the needs of those people, but not every person who is a Southern Baptist or every person who is in a conservative Methodist church or every person who's in a Pentecostal church. Um, has that turn of mind. You know, they're different kinds of people. And and they they have been sold a kind of a theological bill of goods that's really a cultural interpretation of Christianity. And so it tends to work for a while, you know, because it fits with the world that is all around you. Um, but in the times in which we live now... Um, Boy, those cultural worlds are under siege because none of us lives in isolated cultural worlds any longer. Um, you know, simple things like television and the internet. You know, you realize that there are a multiplicity of cultural worlds, and that the one that you're most familiar with, or the one that your your local culture may or may not be the one that you ultimately fit in or ultimately believe in. And so there are lots of people who are stuck in cultural worlds that are aware that there's different kinds of ways of being, um, and they just can't do what their grandparents and their parents did before them, and that is be isolated and apart from those other possibilities. And so, you know, as you get older, those questions, either, either you embrace it more deeply or the questions will not go away. And there's some sort of breaking point that tends to come there for folks. And I feel, I, I really feel for folks who have gotten to the point where they just can't, they just don't believe it anymore. And they're trying to do something different. They're trying to find a different pathway. And they basically have very few spiritual or theological or biblical resources to find a pathway that makes more sense. And I'm afraid there's still a lot of a lot of that kind of questioning and a lot of people who are very lost um, right now about these kinds of questions. Well, the the economy has been set up wrong about the, the even the questions are wrong because I, I've run into people who for years said, well, I tried it and it didn't work. Well, what they tried didn't work because that wasn't what... Uh, and the other thing I will say that even, and I, I don't think this is, a, this, this is a, an overstatement, the, the overwhelming majority of most of the people in the Deep South churches and stuff that were raised like that still understand the, as you write in your book later about compassion, they're, they're overwhelming compassion when someone's hurt or somebody's has a job loss or something. They That part they get, the freedom in the other areas, they don't. They think there are rules. And this kind of brings me to that next thing I was going to talk about. They understand sort of what you're talking about, talking about Tillich and the ground of being, and then you add the water and the sky of being to it. They sort of understand that. They could never put word to it, but they sort of understand it. But they, they don't dare believe it's true because 
starting about 250 years ago, we began this obsession with hell and the fear of right. not doing this right. And so people have lived under the, I mean, you, you, you mentioned some of the good things that came out of the Great Awakening. Certainly there were, but there were certainly the hell factor that kind of grew out of that soil has been one of the things that has kept the church. Uh, it's kept power brokers in power and people in the pews in fear and left us with uh, a lot of folks that are in those really scared to take that next step to try to find the kind of freedom in Christ that the scriptures talk about. Yeah, well, uh, some of that is wrapped up in a, a shift that, that is actually going on in the larger uh, world all around us, and that is the, the idea of hell, and heaven for that matter, is a remnant of a very old uh, cosmology. And, you know, cosmology is just a big fancy word for uh, the, the study of the universe, the way of looking at the universe. And so for generations past, uh, the idea, we had this idea that the universe was structured vertically, and there was basically three tiers in that vertical structure. There was heaven that was above us, hell that was below us, and we were here on Earth. And um, if that is the structure, and our, our ancestors did not believe that was a metaphor. Our ancestors believed that was science. They believed it was philosophy. They believed that it was the absolute truth of the universe. And so you have this, this three-tiered structure. And it, it, that structure survived from the ancient world all the way through uh, early Christianity and up until, you know, fairly recently, about 100 or 150 years ago or so. And so, so we have this, this vertically stacked um, universe. And you can see what the problem is, is that we live here on Earth, and we know that life on Earth is short. And so the question becomes, well, is there more than just what we know here on Earth, and where do we go? Well, everybody knew that you went below the earth because you have bodies that get buried and they decay. But that was not a terribly satisfactory answer <laughs> spiritually. And so people said, oh, well, you know, we also, we, our bodies might die and go into the earth, but we go to heaven. And so, how, but how does that happen? How do you escape the tortures of the earth and death and decay and the be able to go to heaven, and it has long been believed that the gods lived in the stars. And so, 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 what? How do we do this? And and Christianity really developed in relationship to that three-tiered universe. And churches began to see themselves, I think, functionally as elevators. And that is, you have God in heaven, and God puts stuff in an elevator in heaven and sends it down here to the earth. And, um, you know, that might be the word of God or the sacraments or a list of things you're supposed to do and not do, you know, the rules. And, and when the elevator gets here, you have a sort of special elevator operator, somebody who is a member of the clergy, who knows how to take the stuff out of the elevator, turns around to the people and says, hey, look, this is what God wants us to do. God wants us to... Uh, study the Bible and be kind to our neighbors. Uh, God wants us to take these sacraments and um, and uh, live a live a faithful life. God wants us to be born again. You know, God wants us to all speak in tongues. And this is what came up, comes out of the elevator. And then, um, if you when you if you do that stuff, um, when you die, um, God 
will let you go in the elevator and Simone pushes the up button and you get to go up to God. But if you don't, the down button is, is the only option. And so, so, so we have a vertically structured universe and then the church structure, churches structured themselves and every denomination structures themselves this way. It just dependent upon what comes down in the elevator and how people respond to whatever was in the elevator. So that, so you have a central elevator structure of spirituality. And so people want to escape. Uh, they feel like the whole point is not what happens here. This is only the pregame show. Uh, and the whole point is whatever happens afterwards. And the problem is, of course, is about 100 years ago, scientists and philosophers and pretty much everybody, physicists, said, oh, guess what, folks? We don't live in a three-tiered universe. We live in a universe that is made up of a multitude of dimensions of time and space. And there's no up or down. All we have is what stretches out and through what we know as time and space. And so, where's God? Where's God, where's God in, in that? And that, that cosmology... That there is no such thing as a vertical universe. That's what we know as quantum physics. And quantum physics has reshaped the whole understanding of life on this planet in the last 100 to 150 years. The emergence of very early forms of quantum physics, all the way through Einstein, and then the developments past that. And so people, you know, there are Christians who get all upset with Darwin, you know, honest to God, goodness, they should not be upset with Darwin. They need to be upset with Albert Einstein. The Darwin thing is nothing. The Darwin thing is literally small fish compared to quantum physics in the early part of the 20th century and how that has reordered the entire way of thinking about the planet. And what's happening, of course, is that because our whole sort of orientation to reality is changing. Um, faith and spirituality is changing as well. And so the fundamental question is no longer, uh, do I go to heaven after I die? Uh, the, the fundamental question is, what is the nature of paradise that is all around us always in time and space? How is God manifested in and through time and space? God does not exist beyond these things because there is nothing beyond those things. And so, so we are in a whole different theological and spiritual playing field. And that's what I feel sorry for, is that people, people know this. Anybody who is awake and alive in the 21st century knows that there is no literal three-tiered universe where God sits on a throne in heaven. I have heard the most conservative Baptists say to me, oh, yeah, I don't believe that, you know, a white man that sits on a throne in heaven. So they don't believe in that God. They don't believe in that God who sits out there. And I said, well, what do you believe in? And then they completely clam up because they don't have an alternative. And that makes me really sad because there are alternatives. And we're making, we're rereading the stories in the light of this different way of understanding the universe. So, um, 
And and this is the way that the universe was always made. I actually think that you can read the Bible and you can see now, at least I certainly can see it, signs and signals and poetic language and beauty that points to this being the the reality that was always being communicated in Scripture. But we had learned to read Scripture through the lens of the three-tiered universe. And so when we approached the three-tiered universe, or approached the Bible, we just thought it taught about a God who lived in clouds and a devil that was down in hell. But if the universe isn't that, if you put on a different pair of glasses, you get to a whole different reading of what's going on in Scripture. And to me, that's really exciting. Well, and the layer that, uh, if you accept the three-tiered concept in some, on some literal way, the layer in between now and death uh, is really the only, the, only, uh, the only thing to consider is Camus' question, why don't we commit suicide? I mean, because it really is, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm going to get the letter up, the elevator up, because I've done a pretty good thing or done all the things they told me to do, but my life is miserable and everything's terrible, why don't I just go ahead and end it all now? And go to my reward rather than, you know, what I'm saying it kind of leaves leaves questions. If if here is nothing, then uh, that's a long time to be miserable. The certainty of our years here, if they're they're they don't mean anything. Uh, that's right. that's just a it's a sad thing. And it also kind of plays all the way back to the beginning when God created the world. He said it was good. It, it's it's almost like right. a lot of teaching starts after what's been defined as the fall. And that God's ticked off everybody from then on, but they forget that this is all good, right? And and you know, you know, I I mean, God isn't even ticked off at us after that, really. No, you know? no, exactly. <laughs> so it's like it, there's this constant. And people ask me, say, "Well, okay, so where is God for you?" And and you know, in this sort of rearranged understanding of the universe. And I said, "Well, here I come up with a genuine faith statement." This cannot be proved, but I am confident or of the belief that um, there is an intention in this unfolding incredible mystery of, of, of the cosmos, of the universe, that started, you know, 14 billion plus years ago. And I think that that intention is an ever-evolving intention towards love and compassion, and that the universe seeks, it, and this is actually an argument with science, is the universe collapsing in on itself and devolving, or is the universe evolving? Is it expanding? And, and I, I tend to go with the expanding universe people because I think that what the universe is constantly trying to do is to create more and more possibilities of connection and more and more possibilities of beauty. And so that expansion is this expansion of the heart of the compassion of the creator, which I do believe there is a creator that stands at the moment of the Big Bang, that that's the power that initiates this, this whole process. I think that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about. And so, so there's this beautiful intention of compassion. And that is something I can participate in. I can be part of that that my life here actually matters because I'm part being born in the time and place I was born and having the gifts that I have and having the intuitions, the insights, the experience of God that I have, all of that is, is helping to expand the nature of compassion um, in and through uh, the world. And as long as I'm focused on, on that peace, that gives my life meaning and purpose. And um, I want to stay alive, you know, doing that as long as I possibly can. Well, but I, think, I have friends. 
I, I went to an evangelical church when I was much younger and uh, when I was a teenager, and I went to an evangelical college as a student. And I actually had two friends who committed suicide for the very reason you said. And they just got to the point where they realized that, you know, they'd accepted Jesus into their hearts and that they were going to heaven, so why bear the misery of living 50 or 60 years? Why not just get it over with at 22? Yeah, I, I used, and so, and I, so they so they did. I always, you know, use the twelve steps for people who start asking those questions because that's that's obviously a, a quick question for someone suffering, you know, from addiction. That you know, wow, man, this is a long road ahead. You mentioned the expanding universe, and I do think it's becoming at least my my understanding, my what I've read is becoming more complex, and it, at least we're understanding that as it does expand. It does seem to have a very a pretty clear trajectory of expansion. But the compassion thing you mentioned, it seems to be that, that key. And, and really, the people who, um, you know, Peter Inns talked about, you know, the, he began to take the Bible ser- seriously when he quit taking it literally. And uh, right. he, I think the people that even say they take it literally don't read what it says the fruit of the Spirit is. It says there's no, such, there's no law against peace, patience, kindness, loving, gentleness, self-control, those kind of things. And the only demarcation Jesus seems to make in Scripture uh, between those who behave as if they believe what he said were the in Matthew 25. That's the only place he really seems to have a, a demarcation between those who take him seriously and those who don't. <laughs> and, and that is all based around the practice of compassion and justice, of course. <coughs> Excuse me, I have Let's... a little bit of a cold. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really, that whole idea, I, I like I said, I, it's really a faith statement on my part. You know, when I when I look at science, and I, I, I love watching, you know, PBS science programs, and I read as many of the sort of popular science books as I possibly can. Um, you know, the, the, the real sort of tension, I think, right now is between the idea of whether there is anything that is uh, a, moral, uh, a moral imperative or of a moral nature um, in the cosmos, or is it just all matter? You know, is it, is it simply matter that's rearranging itself all the way through time and space? Um, and to me, I, I can't say that it's just matter. And, and that, to me, is the moment when, you know, I have to, I really stand in this tradition of philosophy and spirituality and from a Christian perspective of the Bible, but it could also be the Quran or the Vedas or many other spiritual traditions, is that human beings have always said that there's something, there's some moral purpose, there's some, there's some meaning that's beyond mere matter um, that is in the cosmos, whether that was a three-tiered structured one or now, as we know, the quantum universe. And, and so I'm very happy, you know, to stand with my ancient ancestors and say, yeah, there is moral expansion um, as well as matter expansion through the universe. And when you use the word complex, you know, it brings to mind some really interesting things that are happening in the political discussion right now. It's, uh, while we're talking, you know, who knows what will happen um, before you put this up. But while we're talking, you know, the healthcare debate is, is well, it's not much of a debate. It's actually kind of just a people forcing a bill down people's throats. But the, part of the, the discussion that certainly people have been saying is, oh, my gosh, healthcare is so complex. And everybody says, everybody says, oh, you need to have a bill now. You know, just do this, 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 it's easy. Oh, no, it's so complex. 
Well, if you think about it, the people who are saying it's so complex are the people who are really seeing that it's an issue of compassion. And the compassion is actually very complex. Um, we don't we don't stop and think about that very often. We think, oh well, that's just when you're compassionate, you're just doing the right thing. But compassion means crossing over sometimes all kinds of barriers and lines and risking your own life for the sake of another person or creating something that is is um, you know, sort of risky to create in order that more people will benefit. And so I think that compassion itself has an element of complexity to it. The simple thing is to take things away from people. The simple thing is to be isolated from people. The simple thing is to care about yourself and no one else. And so that, to me, is the, the moral devolution is to pay attention to only me and mine, you know, that really tiny sphere. But to be more morally open, to be morally evolved, is to, to care about compassion on a large scale. And that's a certain kind of complexity. And, and to me, complexity is beautiful because complexity creates unexpected connections and helps you to realize that everything is far more mysterious and far more um, um, purposeful, really, than you ever imagined it to be. And so, so I, I actually love those words, you know, and, it, and if somebody says, oh, it's so complex, I go, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, go there. <laughs> you know, keep following that bunny trail because, because complexity takes you to beauty. And, and then that complexity wraps itself around on itself because when you, when you move through the complexity, you arrive at a new beauty, and it's so clear. Oh, my gosh. You say, this is so, this is so amazing. Why didn't I always see this thing? And, and so complexity or this, this sort of moral evolution, this, comp, this compassion, it, it takes you through a whole bunch of steps that are risky and difficult and painful and broadening, and then you come to this other place and you say, oh, my gosh, I never knew. And then there's a kind of clarity that's really a sort of, um, it's referred to as a second naivete, that you say, oh, it's so simple. But it's not simple like it was before. It's simple now because you've been through the pain of the complexity. You have all the new connections. You've made the risk, and then you see that this was the most worthwhile path that you could have ever walked, and then it becomes the second naivete. Well, and it's, in, it's, always, it's often inconvenient, and, and you can't, like we talked about earlier, how you measure things. Uh, compassion is something <laughs> that uh, certainly it takes money, and you can measure how much money people are giving towards compassionate efforts that but that's not that's just a tiny piece of the story. So when you do get to things like the health care thing and, and uh which by the way, if Donald Trump says something is mean, I, that scares me beyond <laughs> <laughs> I know, me too. Yeah, yeah. It's like, ooh, that's a whole new standard wow. of me. Yeah, they just <laughs> dropped the bottom out of it there. Um uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, I do. There's a couple other things I wanted to ask you. Is we were talking about you, you touched on it a minute ago. What? How do you? What do you see as a healthy way to to approach scripture and your tradition, and what what role does it play in what you call spiritual revolution? Well, right now, I can just sort of tell you the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to read the Bible all the time with new lenses, and that is when I read scripture and I think I know what it means, I say, 
nope, I, I bet it doesn't mean that. And I look at, I try to look at the story as if it's the first time I've ever seen it. And um, the lenses that I'm trying to bring right now to scripture are a non-vertical lens. So I'm trying to avoid all up and down interpretations of scripture, which is sort of fascinating. And um, <laughs> I was talking once to Rob Bell, who I'm sure you'll talk to sooner or later if you mm-hmm. haven't gotten to him mm-hmm. yet. He Hope said, to. well, what's left? He asked me, <laughs> when I told him I was trying to read the scripture non-vertically, he said, well, what are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my gosh, Rob, I can't believe you just said that. And so we got into this wonderful conversation about how I think that the vertical thing is actually an imposition on scripture. And so so, uh, so I'm trying to read the Bible non-vertically, which is fun. And um, I'm also trying to read the Bible through the moral lens of gratitude. Um, and that relates to, I, I have a book coming out in April, which is called Grateful. And so I have been thinking about a single spiritual practice that is deeply, of course, related to compassion. Um, and that, that, that practice is the spiritual practice of gratitude. And so I have been trying to reread scripture Thinking about um, gratitude and the, and uh, and stories of, of thanksgiving and um, praise and it's been a really interesting exercise. So that's one of the ways that I read the Bible is that you know if I think that there's a story that I heard in Sunday school and that that was the one interpretation that I carry through it with that story my whole life, I can pretty well guarantee that I'm not reading the Bible well. And so I literally go into the Bible and I think about taking off one pair of glasses and putting on another pair of glasses and saying, if I look for this in the Bible, what do I see? And I've done that in different times in my life with different subjects. I, back in the 90s when I lost that job, uh, one of the things I did is I spent my time uh, thinking about the Bible in relationship to particularly women in the Bible and the stories of women in the Bible and women's oppression in the Bible. And that was really that was really fascinating. There were stories I just didn't even pay any attention to because I hadn't really been taught to pay attention to the stories of women, uh, named and unnamed women. And there are some pretty harrowing uh, stories of oppression in the Bible uh, with women. And then there are some amazingly heroic ones. And very few of those um, do we spend time with on Sunday school. So, so I've, I've done a lens of gender, I've done lenses of oppression, I've certainly done lenses of history, and, uh, you know, thought about things like how did Calvin, for example, see this passage that's different than how um, my local church sees this passage. So that's always a fun exercise. But now it's, I'm looking at Scripture through the lenses of the non-vertical universe, a grounded universe, and a grateful universe. And um, I, I, I want to write a book about that. I, I actually, my, my publisher has been very reluctant to let me write a book about the Bible. So they keep saying, but what do you know about the Bible? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, because my PhD is in church history, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to let, you know, John Crossan or John Crossan or Rob Bell, you know, he's a pastor who's read tons about the Bible. <laughs> You know, Peter and we're going to let those guys do the Bible. And so we're like, back to the guys again? Are we back to the guys I, I again? I know. 
I know. And so I, th- I want to do the Bible one of these days. And so I think that they might be finally relenting. And uh, maybe that'll be my next project after my grateful book is to, to um, just share sort of a, a lifetime journey with reading the Bible and how I, I love the Bible and it's really stayed with me. And um, I, I, I get mad at it sometimes now, but that's all right. I, I think that that shows a certain kind of maturity when you could say, what the heck, you know, why is this here? This is just this is ridiculous. Um, but I, I don't read it literally, and I haven't for a long time. And, and um, I'm, I'm grateful that that was a habit that I kicked probably in my 20s. So I've learned a lot of different things along the way. It's also a testimony to something that uh, the text that old that have those layers of meaning that like you're talking about. One of the things you mentioned about your grateful book, you know, in, in the big book of AA, uh, Bill W. writes that no no one can maintain their sobriety without gratitude and service. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it really is. And it, that works with any faith tradition, really. But, you know, you think about, uh, um, you mentioned church. How important is church to you? I, right now, feel like I have a sort of a love-hate relationship with church. Oh, don't tell anybody. Oh, here we are on a podcast. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've written for t- almost 20 years about vital churches. And um, I, when I'm in a great church and I, ha- I experience meaningful church, there's, n- there's nothing better. And um, yet I've, I've been enormously frustrated um, since, the, really, November 9th with the church. Um, right now, my, my stress in the fact that uh, Christians are having such a hard time uh, making moral statements and that the divisions of society and the fears about the loss of money and prestige and all those things are just so central to the life of most churches that I find, I'm finding it very difficult to... Um, participate on a regular basis. I love going, you know, and I love being asked to preach, and it's such a joy. I was in a wonderful, amazing uh, UCC church, um, Rock Springs Church in Arlington, Virginia, a few weeks ago. Got to preach there, and it was it was beautiful. And I thought to myself, you know, this is... Who would not want to spend, you know, several hours every weekend doing this? amazing people and the beautiful word and the thoughtfulness of the prayers and the way people cared about one another. And so so I have those experiences, but then I also have experiences of enormous frustration um, of the silence that is thundering from many of the pulpits when I just go and visit a church where they're just avoiding many of the most important issues that are facing us today because they're afraid of their congregations, not giving them money to pay those salaries or put a new roof on the building. Or just and that's pro- utterly depre- protecting, depressing. Protecting what you have is the is always a dangerous thing when you're talking about spiritual anything. Uh, yeah, in in and your I, book, I, you mentioned the farmer's market. In some ways, I, it, I've connected in my mind when I was was reading that. Uh, in some ways, the farmer's market is, is uh, resembles the early church more than many of our churches now. Yeah, I really, I, I love that when I go over to the farmer's market because it really does. <laughs> it's like uh, being in a, a sort of a public bazaar, you know, and I think about uh, Paul uh, standing up in places like that and just 
sort of talking to people um, about the stories of Jesus. And uh, you know, I, I have amazing conversations with people on the farmer's market. And I actually know the religious uh, commitment and perspectives of every single one of the farmers who has stands at our little market. We have a market that only has about 20 uh, stands. It's right near my house. And um, I've known those people for years. I've had conversations with them about food, about money, about sustainability, about climate change. And they range from being uh, this one guy who I absolutely adore, and he really, really likes me. He is a bona fide fundamentalist Christian who goes to a little church that has a known denominational background. And they, you know, they have this huge family. They're like 19 kids and counting. And, um, you know, we, we have in certain ways nothing in common. But what we do have in common is extraordinary. We have a, a deep passion for the earth as God's creation in common. And so here is this guy who definitely reads the Bible literally, and me, who definitely doesn't. And yet, on the most important step, on the care of the planet and the feeding of hungry people, we find ourselves in absolute unity, and we really like one another. And if we started the conversation around, oh, gosh, I can't stand Donald Trump, I don't think he'd talk to me, except that he wants to sell me chicken, you know. <laughs> but he, but we talk because we haven't entered in in that partisan place of misunderstanding, but we've entered in on what is unifying. And that is we're dependent upon this creation to give life and to feed us. And to share that with people, that's where it really begins. And so for me, that becomes the sort of the foundation of a different kind of community. Well, these last couple of questions, uh, uh, I ask everybody. I'm just going to let you uh, answer the first one. One is one is a little going to take, take a little thought. The other one should be fun. We'll see. You can decide which question is which. The first one's who is Jesus? Okay. And what's the second question? No, let's do who is Jesus, and then we'll. Just... <laughs> I don't want to stack okay, them on top of each other for you because the second one, <laughs> the second one has so okay. little. Well, it may not have, but rarely does it have anything to do with the first question. <laughs> well, um, to me, Jesus is God incarnate. Is Jesus is the embodiment of that divine presence of the Creator, and Jesus is model and example, and uh, the embodiment of love. That's the best I can do. That's great. I can also talk about the Trinity and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, you know, did you see the who was it? Who got in trouble for? Oh, was it Colbert got in trouble for talking about the priest who used the fidget spinner to explain the Trinity? <laughs> I, <just thought> <laughs> I, I taught Doctor and Trinity in classes, and I so I can I can go there. But I, I just for, for me, you asked me who who Jesus is for me, and the the embodiment of love. I mean, the absolute embodiment, the incarnation of God as compassion. Okay, and the last question is, when's the last time you laughed so hard it took your breath away? Oh, my gosh. It was before November 9th. I thought about that the other day. I have not laughed really hard since the election. And I thought, oh, my goodness, i got to find a place to laugh. Um, I think maybe... Before that, it might have been 
my husband and I saw Hamilton in the summer before uh, the election, and I remember just just the feeling of being in that play and the absolute delight that it brought forth and being in that theater with all those people and just the the laughing and the crying and the singing along with the words and the and the the the, the joy of the storytelling. I think that might have been the last time when I really just felt everything sort of cut loose and was taken to a different location by joy. And um, it, I, I, right now I think my soul just hurts because I haven't felt that in months and months and months. That's, yeah, I understand that. And um, I always, I've quoted this many times, but one of my favorite quotes you've probably heard, uh, Annie Lamont said that uh, the, the laughter is the carbonated version of the Holy Spirit. And I yeah, think when things I, go flat, you know, they really say flat, you know. You know yeah, I really, I, I love that quote a lot. And I, and I, I was with her in a conference a few weeks ago and I thought about that and um, she did have people laughing and I, I remember laughing at that conference but mm-hmm. that but but I can really say quite honestly that that full on just experience of right. of utter joy I have not felt since before November and so but, but there's been laughter along the way right. and I just would like to get back to a more robust version of it. <laughs> it's, it's coming, I promise. I don't know how, I just some I have this gut feeling. I know oh, one of the things I was, in your book, we didn't get to it, and I only encourage people to read Grounded. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a bit, but uh, you were talking about uh, how important uh, sense of place and family and genealogy. You mentioned that genealogy was the second most uh, searched thing on Google and, and second to porn, and I wonder if there's a Venn diagram of people who search genealogy and porn. How, what that group <laughs> Well, you know, I sort of think they're related in some ways, you know. <laughs> no genealogy without some sex. And so <laughs> there you go. got me to laugh. <laughs> yeah. So your book, Grateful, is your next project and should be out next summer maybe? Yeah. Is that what you're shooting for? A- April. April, uh, okay. The release date is April 3rd. Well, fantastic. Well. Yeah. Day after Easter. Day after that. That's, yeah, so if, if people really love Jesus, they'll buy it the day after Easter, right? Well, I certainly hope that people will be in the mood for a nice uh, post-Easter. Uh, well, I'm an Episcopalian. For us, Easter lasts 50 days, so you've you go. got plenty of time to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I hope that people will want to embrace a life of gratitude and to read about it and think about it in some new ways next uh, Easter season. Well, Diane, I appreciate your time. It's a little it took a little longer than I expected, but I'm glad we finally got to, to do this podcast. And uh, maybe next year when we're talking about gratitude, we can have you on again and talk about why it's a good idea to be grateful and what that does for us. Well, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Uh, we're in total agreement. It was a great conversation. And uh, something came up, and I missed the Wild Goose Festival, so I didn't get a chance to go up and meet Diana in person and her husband. And... Um, but I hope to get to see them uh, on another occasion and talk to some folks about a wrap-up about the Wild Goose Festival this year. But for now, that's it for this episode of the Thinking God Podcast. I hope you will follow Thinking God Podcast on iTunes or Google Play or at Podbean. And join us again next time when we'll bring voices of hope and faith in a world that needs them.